are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode 143 on the Cleveland Torso Murders, the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Yeah. That's like a freaking movie name. Yes. It is like a movie name, and they should have made a movie out of this. I've heard of this, but I don't know the deets, so I'm very excited about all of this. It is ridiculous. It sounds like a freaking monster movie. So it is a monster movie. (laughs) It's a mess. But before we get into the episode, we have just a few business items uh, to go through. So all of you that has asked for pins, they have been shipped out. They shipped out what? uh, Tuesday, I want to say is when I dropped them off. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, they should be to you very soon if and when you get them. If you wouldn't mind taking a picture of yourself with the pin and tagging us in it because we would love to see your beautiful faces with the pin. And do not forget the protective coating because <laughs> they look like shit, but there's Remove a protective the coating, coating before you take the picture, <laughs> please. And and I did hand write a note to every single person. And I did mention the coding to just (laughs) remind you again. Just making sure. It's very important. Um, We mentioned in prior episodes a couple episodes ago about possibly doing an investigation at the Ohio State Reformatory. I left her a message and she has yet to call me back. So I'll follow up on that. We kicked around the idea of June, but June's like soon. That's Um, like now. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. So we'll see if there's any other dates. I know it would, would you say, right? Do they only go to like September or something like that? So, yeah, and they don't have like a list of available dates on the website. Mm-hmm. You just have to look at their scheduled tours and kind of guess when their private tours are. So yeah. that's not cool. But just looking at that, I feel like we only had one other option in August. Yeah, that's what I think too, August. But we'll have to double check and see what, what dates they do have available. Yeah, I'll try to call them again and see if I can get anybody on the horn and see if we can do that. And then if not, I'll ask if they have, you know, their schedule open for next year. Maybe we can pick a date next year and do it that way. That might be better for everybody to kind of be able to pencil it in. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that's that. And what else do we want them to do? Just took a drink of my drink. (laughs) Like, share and subscribe, please. Yes, please. We are um, loving all of the downloads that we're getting. We appreciate everybody that interacts with us. Um, I changed the date for when we release these episodes. We like to get them out on Monday, but quite frankly, we're not great at it. So you will get an episode one time a week at least, unless we are going on vacation that we'll notify you on. So we apologize, but this is the best we can do. And we appreciate you coming back every week, whatever day that (laughs) may be. Yeah, we do. (laughs) Just think of it as like, you know, um, a A surprise. surprise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You never know what day it's going to drop, but we're coming back at you one day a week at least. At some point. (laughs) Yes. Um, Also, Red Mask 13, she was the winner of our tank top giveaway. And the tank top came in and that has been shipped also. So uh, you should be getting that soon. We would love to see you in it. They're very cute. And if you are interested in ordering a tank top, we did add a new design. It's a big mystery history OG logo on a black tank top. um, And that's available on our store if you'd like to purchase it. And just a side note. We're not like super happy with our merch store. So if anybody has any suggestions on like stores that they've seen used to do merch, please let us know. We are, we like to keep our options open. Not very happy is a cute way to describe it. (laughs) It's very politically like, yeah, cute. (laughs) Super cute. Super cute. But really we've got to get out now. (laughs) help us <laughs> help us now the quality the quality is good right yeah um it's just the behind the scenes stuff that's given us some troubles so right uh plus shipping is super high which i know shipping is high everywhere for everything especially since 
we spent buku bucks sending out these damn pins um but there's got to be a better option we just don't know all those options so if you got one let us send it our way yeah okay i think that's all i had you got anything else nope okay let's get started with this movie mystery mayhem story all right so 1920s painting a picture here Right before the Great Depression began, Cleveland, Ohio was a city on the rise. Immigrants were coming to Cleveland from all around the world, which resulted in a large population growth. People came to join the city's industrial and manufacturing workforce and to enjoy the thriving economy. The wealthiest people of the city lived in homes along Millionaire's Row and supported many new educational and cultural institutions. Just like most places, Cleveland was hit really hard by the Great Depression that came in 1929. Can you imagine just, like, living the good life and then the Depression hits? That literally happened in our lifetime, dude. Do you not Not remember? Not as bad, though. 20% of people were unemployed. That literally happened in our lifetime. It just didn't happen to you. (laughs) 20%? (laughs) I would say, yeah. Whenever the housing market crashed in 2008, my life was ruined. Dude, your life was not ruined in 2008. That's when I had to file bankruptcy and uh, my house got foreclosed on. Oh, shit. You are right. It did just not affect me because I was still in college. Yeah, you bitch. It was (laughs) it was painful for a lot of people. This is. I mean, I was eating ramen noodles, but I wasn't losing my house. So thank you for correcting me because I completely forgot about that. Yeah. So fun fact, folks, 2008 sucked and it really did happen. <laughs> I still am questioning if unemployment was at 20%. I luckily did not lose my job during that time. I lost it uh, whenever I did six month old, which was painful not great yeah um but you know all those little nuggets they just make you stronger so it's fine but yeah Yeah. that's that was terrible because i we just bought a house right before the market crashed and we paid like twice as much as we should have for it and young and dumb baby young and young yep and then the interest rates increased which made our house payment that i couldn't already afford way more than what i could afford and it was just yeah yeah, sucky time very bad year yeah. And unemployment was at 10%. So in case anybody's interested, that's good to know. So not as bad, not as bad as the great depression, but still not a depression. So just the depression, probably like the good depression, <laughs> <laughs> not the great depression, man. Well, it was against this backdrop of struggle in this big city that one of the most abhorrent serial killers in the world I said it in the world began. You said their... abort. What the hell does that abort. mean? Ab- What's just that? like terrible, like ugh, bad, <laughs> like that. Okay, thank you. Carry on. I didn't want to say prolific because that felt like the word to use, but then I was like, mm, I don't know if he's the most prolific serial killer because I don't feel like he's that popular. Wait, but so you like picked this word out and was like, this is the winner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought about it. I typed these notes up. Did you use a thesaurus also, or did you just no, know this word? No, that's just a word I use. We what? are not reading the same books. <laughs> no, we're not. Guaranteed. We have not been reading the same books. Yes, I picked the word abhorrent to describe him. All right? I'm shocked. Good for you. Thank you. So, this abhorrent serial killer began... <laughs> his reign of terror targeting the most vulnerable of society not kids most vulnerable other than kids good before real really beginning um everything it's important to discuss the location where these murders took place so just to give you an idea of the situation um where the victims were from and the hardships that these people were facing so go ahead and tell us about that Allie. all right well, side note abhorrent serial killer that would be cool on a (laughs) t-shirt and that's probably not trademarked by anybody because yet because everything else is (laughs) it really is which is crazy but yeah abhorrent i'm sure is free if we wanted (laughs) probably for a reason (laughs) 
Because <laughs> nobody knows. I'm just glad you read most that part. Serial killer. Because I'd been like abhorrent. You know how I do it. Oh, I do. Okay. Know how you do it. Here we go. Let's set the scene of where these crimes took place. So King- Kingsbury Run is a prehistoric river bend running the uh, from the flats. I've been to the flats, and it's not like it was back then. It's very nice now. Um, what's that word? Gentrification. Mm-hmm. It happened. The area along the Cuyahoga River near Lake Erie is where the flats are to about East 90th Street. Train and rapid transit tracks still run through Kingsbury Run, bordered on the north by Woodland Avenue and on the south by Broadway Avenue. Kingsbury Run was a dark, dreary, and dangerous place in the 30s. Those that had nowhere else to go during the Great Depression ended up in this shanty town that was used by Cleveland's industrial and manufacturing companies to dump waste into the Cuyahoga River. Eh, that's not good either. No, that's not great. <laughs> there was even sewer drainage at this location. Oh, there was even sewer drainage at this location. Um, no one was living here because they wanted to, uh, but because there were circumstances that were out of their control. So nobody chose like, this is where I'm going to go. It's yeah, more like this- you just had to be there exactly so this is the shanty town which those popped up during the great depression because there were so many people that were homeless and that was where it was which there's literal poop like around yeah yes the conditions were bad trash and filth had dominated the makeshift hobo jungle that occupied much of the run these people most of them were transients often rode the rails to escape the brutal cleveland winters or simply just to keep moving i don't know if y'all have ever been to cleveland in the winter but it's freaking cold Rough. so it cold is worse than just cold too because of the stuff that comes off the lake uh-huh frigid yeah it's just like moist mm-hmm. it's not good it's no not great. But it's Cleveland sometimes, and I like Cleveland a lot. <laughs> I do too. I went to, to Cleveland on a work trip, and 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 I've been watching a lot of um, Guy Fieri and his diners, drive-ins, and dives. There yeah. are a lot of solid eateries there that I would love to try. I would love to just go to Cleveland and eat my way through it. Like, yeah. Um, but anyway, the the flats I know was under construction whenever I was there, and they were making it into like a real hip place to go because it's and stuff or bars bars and like eateries and things like that so they're trying to make like a little outdoor mallish type thing there but Uh it it's beautiful because it's right on the river and that's why cleveland's so special because there's a lot of different areas where it's just so pretty because of all the water they really cleaned up that river too Mm -hmm. yeah no no more poop and industrial waste industrial waste going in there right the area just to the east of the run was uh, known as the Roaring Th- Third Police Precinct home to bars, brothels, flap houses, and gambling dens. In this grim setting, the most notorious murder case in Cleveland's history would unfold. Get ready for it. Dun, dun, dun. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. September 1934, a young man found the remains of a woman in her mid-30s. The torso with thighs still attached, but amputated at the knees and no head had washed up on the shores of Lake Erie, just east of Brattonall. Cuyahoga County Coroner A.J. Pierce noted that a chemical preservative on the skin had turned it red and tough. The subsequent search yielded just a few other body parts, but her head was never found. The woman was never identified, which is a common theme to a lot of these victims. They were never able to identify who they were. And she was soon referred to as the Lady of the Lake. It wasn't until two whole years later that this find was included in the official killing total and thus became known as victim number zero because they started counting, not realizing she was included. It would be another year before the case began officially, and then it would be in another part of the city, which is the now infamous Kingsbury Run. So a year later, in September 1935, two teenage boys discovered the decapitated, emasculated corpse of a white male at the base of Jackass Hill, 
where East 49th Street dead ends into Kingsbury Run. Do you know what emasculated means? I would assume... I would assume, like, shriveled? No. Or you mean his ding-dong was cut off? Like, all of it. I had to Google because I was like, do they mean castrated? Like, is that what happened? So I had to look up emasculated, and it means not just the balls, but also the peen mm-hmm. yikes so the whole shebang was not there doesn't sound fun no uh the body naked save for a pair of socks was clean and drained of blood with rope burns around both wrists coroner pierce determined the cause of death had been decapitation his head was found buried nearby Fingerprints identified this victim as Edward Andrassi, a 28-year-old white male who frequented the Roaring Third and was allegedly homosexual, which was still illegal at the time in 1935, which is crazy. Right. At one time, he had been an orderly in the psychiatric ward at Cleveland City Hospital. However, at the time of his death, he was unemployed and had no visible means of financial support. It was determined that he had been dead two to three days. While searching the crime scene, police discovered a second body nearby, also decapitated and emasculated, so no peen or balls. It appears to be covered (laughs) with uh, the same chemical preservative as the Lady of the Lake. This body apparently had been dead for at least a couple of weeks. The 40-year-old white male was never identified. Just painting a picture here. The whole decapitation thing, that freaks me out. The first lady with only like a torso and nubs below the knee. Yeah. It's just like that. What? And two poor boys. Yeah. Found this. Two teenage boys. That would like mess you up forever. Thanks. Thanks for these pictures. (laughs) Enjoy. Um, Enjoy the photographs I put here for you. Oh my God. Oh my God. We can't post these on Instagram. (laughs) No. I will definitely get in trouble. Well, I mean, I always wanted to know what a decapitated head looks like, and now that can be crossed off the bucket list. Wow. Sorry. I should have warned you. That yeah, was really bad sure. of me. Yeah, I know you yep. can handle it, and you looked at this stuff in, like, eighth grade, so, like, I don't feel that bad. That's but. true. But it was still shocking to see. <laughs> Rotten.com already ruined us, let's be honest. That's true. <laughs> but, yeah, I was like, oh, my gosh. But yeah, that would be terrible to come up on. I mean, finding a dead body alone is bad, but coming up on just like body pieces, no. And the ones that are like drained of blood, like that freaks me out. I don't I don't want to be hung upside down to bleed out anywhere. Like no. just kill me first, please. Getting decapitated sounds awful. I know. That would have to be, you would have to do it so hard to like mm. chop somebody's head off. Yeah. Mm. And you'd have to get it right like in the between. Ver- yeah, vertebrae and stuff, man. Mm. Wow. I don't know. It just sounds awful. January 1936, a woman discovered parts of another woman's body neatly wrapped in newspaper and packed in two half bushel baskets. The baskets were left alongside the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue near East 20th Street. The rest of the remains, except the head, were recovered about 10 days later in a nearby vacant lot on Orange Avenue. Just, like, all about town. Yeah, just bodies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As with victims number one and two, the cause of death had been decapitation. In this case, however, the killer waited for rigor mortis to set in before um, disarticulating the rest of the body. These buzzwords are killing me, man. It's crazy that they know that stuff. Yeah, that it's you're cold before they start chopping. Yeah, when it's been, you know, it's not like it was 10 days later that they found like most of her body i feel like so i feel like chopping through a body warm would be hard enough but to do it when it's stiff i mean dang yeah cleveland mm. police used fingerprints to identify victim number three as florence palillo a waitress and barmaid who at the time of her death resided at east 32nd street 
and Carnegie, which was right on the edge of the Roaring Third. Lots of uh, triangulation here to this yeah, Roaring Third business. All right in the same place. June 1936. Early one morning in Kingsbury Run, two young boys again discovered the head, not the same ones, different boys, Right. discovered the head of a white male wrapped in a pair of trousers close to the East 55th Street Bridge. The next day, Cleveland police found the body of a 20-some-year-old man the next day dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. Clean and drained blood, boo. The corpse was intact except for the severed head. You can't call it intact if it doesn't have a freaking head. Everything else was intact. I know, but still, it's head is a key piece. <laughs> Pierce again determined the death had been caused by decapitation. Typically, yes, that kills people. In spite of a fresh set of fingerprints and the presence of six distinctive tattoos on various parts of the body, police were never able to identify the victim. This wow. part is messed up. Oh, great. Okay. A plaster reproduction of the man's head, along with a diagram of the kind and location of the tattoos, were displayed, wow, at the Great Lakes Exposition of 1936. They felt like that was, like, the best way to get the word out. Like, they would reach the most people in the area seeing this and seeing if any of them recognized him. That would never fly today. But, like, yeah. Like, this is a family event, all right? Like, you can't do that kind of stuff. This is in the same vein as, like, public hangings and stuff. Like, having a picnic with your family while watching somebody die. Like, yeah, crazy. Um, but, I mean, in the that time, that probably was the best way to get as much mm-hmm. exposure to it as possible. Yeah, so it really, wasn't a terrible idea. Yeah, kind of ingenious. Sensitive. Right. <laughs> Well, the boys and young boys are finding them all over town. Might as well make a plaster reproduction, I guess. More than than 100,000 people saw the death mask and tattoo chart, but the tattooed man was never identified. The original death mask, along with three others from the case, are on display at the Cleveland Police Museum. I also heard that the decapitated head was photographed and distributed by police prior to the death mask being made. Now... Let me just tell you a little personal story about death masks. So Evie was in kindergarten and I cannot remember where I took her, but it, oh, at the, um, in Gatlinburg, they have a museum there for like true crime and stuff like that. They have Ted Bundy's beetle and everything. Well, they have death masks there also. Why would you take her there? (laughs) Because I really wanted to go and I was being selfish. (laughs) So whenever she gets back to school, in kindergarten, she's telling her teachers about the death masks that she saw on vacation. Oh, gosh. So that was cool. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I guess it's not that weird. <laughs> that they, you they put this a kindergartner at a, to it. It's fine. And that's not widely regarded anymore. They don't just have those affairs. I had to take her to a place with death masks. <laughs> yeah. This was not a mistake that you made. This was no. a choice. <laughs> Correct. Anyway. So you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, I can't believe they took a picture of this guy's decapitated head like on a silver gurney and printed it out. And we're asking people like, you know, this guy. Is that the picture that's above that I saw? No, No. No, I think that one is of the person who's right next to like that picture of that man uh-huh. while he's alive, oh. that's him. And he was um, Edward. Okay. So is there any more right. decapitated heads I should be aware of? I don't think I added any more. Okay. I mean, if you see one, you see them all. In here. Yeah. It's too late. Okay. I've already ruined it for you. But <laughs> I just can't believe they were like showing, like, but also that's me and you, man. I already know you've seen this kind of stuff. So it's like, whatever they printed it out and we we're like asking people just around just on the streets do you know this guy it could be somebody's kid you know that that's true i didn't think about that part that is and terrible. what a way what a way to find that out like just walking the streets to get some groceries and like you know this guy this picture of his head and like that's my son well and i feel like you're right like you and i are probably not 
typical people and we are a little desensitized when it comes to this stuff because we seek it out because we're weird but to the average bear they don't want to they do not want to see it no I mean, and I wouldn't even say I technically want to see it, but yeah, I end up seeing it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> we just accept our just fate. It happens <laughs> somehow to me. But yeah, I just thought that was weird. Like, ooh, man. July 1936. So one month later, a teenage girl came across the decapitated remains of a 40 year old white male while walking through the woods near Clinton Road and Big Creek on the near west side of Cleveland. The victim had been dead about two months and his head, as well as a pile of bloody clothing, was found nearby. Judging by the enormous quantity of blood that had seeped into the ground, this man had apparently been killed where his body was found. This was victim number five, and he was never identified. So a couple of things. Number one, why is it all teenage kids and young kids finding this? This is not okay. Like, how many traumatized children are in cleveland right now (laughs) right i agree what a mess and then two i think it's really interesting that this one this person was murdered in the spot and they left him there like Mm -hmm. that's not what they've been doing at all so why maybe they got caught Caught. mm -hmm, in the middle and had to hurry up and just leave or what I don't know. It's kind of interesting because the person was also decapitated. And the idea here is I think they're starting to think and realize that this person has a place that they're doing this. They can't just be doing this in one spot in town and then moving the pieces elsewhere. Like they're, they've got like a home base somewhere and this person, they just did there. I don't know. Weird. Could it be another person? September 1936, a man tripped over the upper half of a man's torso while trying to hop a train at East 37th Street in Kingsbury Run. Wow. You're just outliving your life tripping over people's bodies. (laughs) God. Yikes. I mean, my bad luck is like getting my belt loop stuck in the door handle of the door when I'm trying to carry in groceries. This is a whole nother level. It's out of control. And can you imagine the terror that is going on in the city? Did he make the train? Good question. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I need need to know. (laughs) I'm going to say no. (laughs) Probably not. Cleveland police searched a nearby pool, which was nothing more than a big open sewer, and found the lower half of the torso and parts of both of his legs. Police sent a diver in to make the recovery. So Into wait, you're in a sewer. Ew. Ew. Yeah. How could you even see with all the I poo particles? Know. I don't know. Ugh. And not even that, but you're looking for freaking legs. Yeah, there's <laughs> nothing good about this. You're looking for legs in a toilet. Like, okay. Don't so want that job. So let's just say. You and I are weirder than the average bear, but that's a whole other level of weird that we'll never be. That's a lot of not okay. All right. So he's in the poo pool looking for legs. Number of onlookers that turned out to watch the grim spectacle was estimated at over 600 people. Now, I'd probably be one of those people. You would. <laughs> I would. I'd be like, what's this guy doing in this poo lake? Um. And the killer may have been among them because they could like to have, do that. Could have very easily been among them. If there's 600 of anyone, there's probably a serial killer in the bunch at some Period. point, even if it's not that one. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Victim number six was in his late 20s and the cause of death yet again was, spoiler, decapitation. Coroner Pierce noted that the lack of hesitation marks in the disarticulation of the body indicated a strong, confident killer, very familiar with human anatomy. Yeah, because he's done it, what, six, seven, technically, if you count zero times? Yeah, but he was already like this. Yeah, so he's probably a surgeon. Am I right? They are thinking at this point, I think they're starting to think that it is either a surgeon or a, what are those called? Butchers. 
Uh-huh. And like maybe just a skilled butcher that knows about the human anatomy. This is very um, Black Dahlia. They thought that this guy possibly killed the Black Dahlia. And we'll talk about that later. God, we I'm... talked about that in the Black Dahlia episode. So come on. Right. But I forgot. You know, I don't know what we talked about last week. I know. Okay. Um, the victim died instantly. Thankfully, uh, when the head was cut off in one bold, clean swoop, victim number six was never identified. So fall 1936, there's now a media frenzy. Six brutal killings in one year, and the police didn't have clues. They didn't really have suspects. So the Cleveland Press, the Cleveland News, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer all reported almost daily on the killings and the lack of suspects. So tension was pretty high. People wanted to know WTF is going on. Who is this guy? What are you guys doing to protect us? So things were getting a little wild. And when will our kids stop tripping over dead bodies? Valid question. Yes. (laughs) Giving into the mounting pressure from Mayor Harold Burton, recently appointed safety director, none other than D. Elliot Ness, got more involved in the case. So Elliot Ness is one of the most famous federal agents in the history of law period. He's best known for his efforts in taking down Al Capone. Hmm. So if you don't remember who Elliot Ness was, that's who Elliot Ness is. He's the Elliot Ness. He's the Elliot Ness. The Ness. Mm -hmm. Coroner Pierce called for what the newspapers dubbed a torso clinic. What's that? Pretty dark. Pretty dark name there. Yeah. Newspapers. In an already tense time. <laughs> Maybe think of a better name. Um, <laughs> this was a meeting of the police, the coroner, and other experts to discuss information. Just to get together, share what you know, make sure we're all on the same page, and to try to profile someone who could be responsible for these gruesome killings. And it's in that when they started saying could be a butcher then as a human anatomy Mm -hmm. could be you know a surgeon and yeah so that happened the police department put detectives peter merrill how you say this merrill 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 i like that merrill and martin zaliski on the case full time they moved deftly through the seedy underworld that constituted the run and the roaring third often dressing the part while off-duty. By the time the case had run its course, the two had interviewed more than 1,500 people. So, I mean, you can't say they weren't trying. Yeah, they're working on it. The department as a whole had more than 5,000 interviews that they did. This would be the biggest police investigation in Cleveland history. The November elections returned Harold Burton as mayor, but Coroner Pierce was replaced By the young Democrat and now legendary Samuel Gerber, Gerber's fierce dedication to medicine, coupled with his law degree, put him at the forefront of the investigation. Not not a bad thing to have a new set of eyes on things. Yeah, not terrible. So February 1937, a man found the upper half of a woman's torso washed up on shore east of Bratinall. Unlike the previous victims, the cause of death had not been decapitation. This had happened after she was already dead. Hmm. The lower half of the torso washed ashore three months later at about East 30th Street. The woman was in her mid-20s, and she was never identified. Stuff is just washing up in the sea. I mean, they're finding body parts, like, every couple weeks. That's insane. It seems like. Because when you talk about these, there's so many of them where they're like, they found this, then they found this, then they found mm -hmm. this, like, weeks later. Like, what the heck? It's just wild to me that, like, well, it's crazy that he does it to both men and women. It's not. There is no MO here. Yeah. Like, they're not sticking to a person, like, a type. It's just convenience, it seems like, just whoever's around and he's got some time. And Yeah, the only thing is that they're all from or somehow connected to the Roaring Third and the Kingsbury Run area. Like, Yeah, somehow. but that's, that's convenience, right? Because they're mostly transient folk. 
Yeah, they that's what ties them all together is they're picked out as people that will not be missed. And I also think that it's super gross. This is like it's just so gross that we go in water and there's probably bodies in there. Like every body of there's, water that you go into. Yeah. There's a hundred percent fish bodies, but probably people bodies too. Probably. Ugh. Just don't think about it. Well, and you like sometimes you try not to, but it gets in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's poop and pee in there too. And you're probably gonna have diarrhea later because <laughs> it got in your mouth. I can deal with poop and pee in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. But not dead body in my mouth. Is that a quote? Can I quote you on that? <laughs> <laughs> that is a quote. You put that on my tombstone. <laughs> She could deal with poop and pee, but not dead bodies <laughs> in her mouth. Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's wild. And then in June 1937, a teenage boy, another kid, discovered a human skull under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. Next to it was a burlap bag containing the skeletal remains of what turned out to be a petite black woman about 40 years old. Dental wow. work allowed for the unofficial identification as Rose Wallace of Scoville Avenue. Police followed every lead they had on her, but they led nowhere. So they weren't able to prove that that was her, but that's who they think it was. And now, I mean, white men, white women, a black woman, like mm-hmm. everybody. Yeah, anybody. And okay, at what point do you tell the kids stop going in the freaking woods and don't open up anything? ever wrapped up yeah do not open up anything wrapped up not okay yikes july 1937 there was labor problems in the flats in the summer of 1937 and the national guard had been called in to maintain order a young guardsman standing watch by the west third street bridge saw the first piece of victim number nine bobbing in the cuyahoga river in the wake of a passing tugboat. So it was just floating in the water. Bobbing up and down behind the tugboat. Over the next few days, police recovered the entire body, except for the head, from the waters of the Cuyahoga River. Because the head probably sank. It's heavy. The abdomen had been gutted and the heart ripped out, clearly indicating a new element of viciousness in the killer's approach. The victim was in his mid to late 30s and he was never identified. So this guy was like angry. How can though, like we talk about this serial killer and not being able to identify who it is, but so many victims we can't even identify. Yeah. It's crazy. They, I feel like that is super common in here that they weren't able to identify hardly anybody. It seems like. That's sad that nobody misses these people. Maybe they do. You know, I don't know. It's just they just that didn't was... have good ways of identifying people back then, too. And now it seems like almost everybody has somebody that knows where they are. But in the middle of the Great Depression, these people had no money, mm-hmm. had nowhere to live, a lot of them. And there wasn't, I guess, anybody super keeping tabs on them. Well, and communication is not like it is today. Like, you know. If... Yeah, it's way easier to communicate. Plus, these people, a lot of them were transient. Mm-hmm. So they might not have had anybody here at all, period. That's so sad. It is. April 1938, a young laborer on his way to work in the flats saw what he at first thought was a dead fish along the banks of the Cuyahoga River. Closer inspection revealed it to be the lower half of a woman's leg. Ooh. Yeah. The first part of victim number 10 to be recovered a month later police pulled two burlap bags out of the river containing both parts of the torso and most of the rest of the legs for the first time coroner gerber detected drugs in the system Hmm. so that's new were the drugs used to immobilize the victim or was she an addict the answer might have come if they had found the arms but they never did she was never identified. Good lord. Just another Where are person. all these body parts? Like oh now? My. Like right now? No, like in 1937. 
they're just probably floating in the river probably eaten by fish oh yeah they probably sunk or something i don't know it's crazy Mm. august 16th 1938 three scrap collectors foraging in a dump site at east ninth in lakeside found the torso of a woman wrapped in a man's double-breasted blue blazer and then wrapped again in an old quilt the legs and arms were discovered in a recently constructed makeshift box wrapped in brown butcher paper and held together with rubber bands. That's got to be some big-ass rubber bands. Freaking crazy. Like, who yeah. does that? Which would make sense with the butcher aspect of killing because of the butcher paper. Um, the head had been similarly wrapped. Gerber noted that some of the parts looked as if they'd been refrigerated. Hmm. While searching for more pieces, the police discovered the remains of a second body only yards away. So he's just, like, taking body parts and just flinging them, like... Yeah. Willy-nilly. This one might have had a reason. These two bodies had been placed in a location that was in plain view. Oh, from Elliot Ness's office window, almost as if taunting him. Okay. That makes sense. That is ballsy. That's so ballsy. That's a big, like, middle finger to police because, I mean... Obviously, they haven't done anything for him with all these other bodies. We're at 11 and 12. Neither victim, 11 or 12, were ever identified. All right. So August 18th, 1938, at 1240 a.m., Elliot Ness and a group of 35 police so hold on before I finish this. This is two days later. Yeah. In the middle of the night. So okay. he's pissed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's mad. So he got 35 of his police officer friends and detectives <laughs> and he raided the homeless encampments in Kingsbury run. 11 squad cars, two police vans and three fire trucks descended on the largest cluster of makeshift shacks where the Cuyahoga river twists behind public square. Ness's raiders worked their way South through the run, eventually gathering up 63 men. Holy at dawn, police and firemen searched the deserted shanties for clues. Then on orders from safety director Ness, the shacks were set on fire and burned to the ground why because he's pissed but those people only one of them probably did something (laughs) only one of them wow that's terrible it's awful that these people had nowhere else to go right that's just like a power trip yeah well and the press severely criticized ness for his actions The public remained afraid, and they were still frustrated. Critics said the raid would do nothing to solve the murder, and they were right. It didn't solve the murder, but but they stopped. Mm. Okay. July 1939, County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell arrested 52-year-old Bohemian bricklayer Frank Dolzell, for the murder of Flo Palil. Dozel had lived with her for a while. And you remember subs- who Flo is, right? No. She is one of the few people they were able to identify early on, like the third victim or something like that. And she was the waitress. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. So he had lived with her for a while. And subsequent investigation revealed he had been acquainted with Edward Andrassi and Rose Wallace, okay, who were so also and identified victims. Yes, mm-hmm. of his... the like literally three they identified. He knew all three of them. That's just really bad luck. It was. It was. I think <laughs> his confession in quotations turned out to be a bewildering blend of incoherent ramblings and neat, precise details almost as if he'd been coached before he could go to trial. Dozel was found dead in a cell. Like we happens sometimes the five foot eight Dozel had hanged himself from a hook, only five feet, seven inches off the floor. How do you do that? 
yeah, that's called a guard hook, hooked you up on there. Mm-hmm. You would have to be like really committed to being unalive to hang yourself on something that you could touch the ground with. Right. Gerber's autopsy revealed hmm, six broken ribs, all of which had been obtained while in sheriff's custody. So you don't break your ribs before you kill yourself either. No. So they're thinking people, the folk, are thinking that he was beat into giving this confession. Mm -hmm. And then he tried to recant it, I believe, and was found hung when he started saying, you know, they they made me do this. Wow. To this day, few believe that Frank Dozel was this torso killer. So it's probably all this, this, it seems like this Elliot Ness character has just lost control. I mean, he burned down all of these things that these people were living in. Now you've got essentially a false confession and the guy just happens to be dead afterwards. That's suspicious. Yeah. That sounds like the sheriff's doing and not Elliot Ness's, in my opinion, but yes. I mean, we also all also know that Elliot Ness is a crazy person. Yeah. So maybe they're in cahoots. I don't know. So I said that they stopped the murders after the burning of Kingsbury Run and the ones they were counting, any murders that they were counting as for sure being connected, those stopped. But in December 1938, the Torso Slayer allegedly sent a letter to Elliot Ness claiming that he had moved to California and killed a woman there and had buried the head in southwest Los Angeles. In the letter, the killer referred to himself as a DC or doctor of chiropractics. An investigation uncovered animal bones. Hmm. This admission resulted in authorities considering the possibility that the Cleveland Torso murder case had some connection to the Black Dahlia murder Hmm. because it was out there. The mutilated remains of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short were found in a vacant lot in the unfinished Limert Park housing development of Los Angeles on January 15, 1947, Both Elizabeth and the Torso Slayer victims had been thoroughly cleaned after death, and a butcher knife was believed to have been used in both cases. Wow. So that's, like, suspicious. So I wonder where James Hodel was in all of this, because he was, like, his son has come forth saying that he believes that he is the person that killed the Black Dahlia, who was a surgeon. Mm -hmm. So I wonder where, if he can be accounted for during this time in cleveland i think he can be i think so too but that doesn't necessarily mean these people could just taunt you know and and use the same mo essentially yeah they could okay july 22nd 1950 the body of 41 year old robert pat uh, or i'm sorry robert robertson wow Uh hold on do you remember when we were younger we were talking about having children and naming them walter walters and (laughs) william williams yes and then i realized william williams is my father's name (laughs) (laughs) and also that we don't get to keep our well we could keep our last names but we did not keep our last names when we got married (laughs) right i mean it was a good plan it was for for a second. Yeah. Somebody didn't think that through when naming Robert Robertson, or maybe they did whenever they were a teenager and had our idea. Yeah, maybe it was on purpose. Anyway, he was 41 and he was found at a, a business at 2138 Davenport Avenue in Cleveland. Police believed he had been dead six to eight weeks and appeared to have been intentionally decapitated. His death appeared to fit the profile of other victims. He was estranged from his family, had an arrest record and a drinking problem, and was on the fringes of society. Despite widespread newspaper coverage linking the murder to the other crimes, detectives investigating Robertson's death treated it as an isolated crime. So I wonder if they had an actual reason to think that it was not connected. Or if it was just the time that had passed. 
or they it just didn't fit into their narrative of who they thought mm-hmm. was responsible because we do head into that later. So, okay. I don't know. Between 1921 and 1942, nine people, eight of them, I, I thought this was crazy, eight of them unidentified were found dead and dismembered in the swamps or around the train yards of Newcastle and West Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What? The murders were being dubbed the murder swamp killings. And it's been theorized to be additional victims of the Cleveland Torso murderer. Do you know about these? No. I didn't either. We need to do an episode on this. Yeah. The almost identical similarities between the victims in Newcastle to those in Cleveland, both of which were directly connected by a Baltimore and Ohio railroad line, were enough to convince Cleveland detective Peter Merlot that the new castle murders were related. So he thought they were. The headless body of an unidentified male was found in a boxcar in Newcastle, Pennsylvania on July 1st, 1936. Three headless victims were found in boxcars near McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania on May 3rd, 1940. All of them bore similar injuries to those inflicted by the Cleveland killer. Dismembered bodies were also found in the swamps near Newcastle between the years 1921 and 1934 and between 1939 and 1942. So that happened. So 1938 is when essentially the Cleveland torso murder stopped. Uh Uh-huh. So, I mean, I guess it would make sense that the 1941s but I don't see how he would have time to do the other ones. Why? Because he's busy killing people in Cleveland. Well, it says 1921 to 1934, there were murders in Pennsylvania. And these murders started in September 1934. That is when the Lady of the Lake was found. And then they continued through to 1938. Mm. And then they basically stopped. So I guess it could be possible. Yeah. I mean, I just started finding bodies again in 1939. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying that it could be. It lines up. I just didn't realize how many people like to kill people via decapitation. I know, right? That doesn't seem like it would be a popular move. I feel like that's now on my fear list of running across a, a decapitated person. Either way, a head or a torso would not be yeah. fun. No, I think I'd rather I don't know which one would you rather find. I'm I'm going to shoot for the torso probably. Yeah, probably. I don't I don't want to see eyeballs. That's me. I don't want to see their eyes either. It makes it too real. Yeah. Like they're looking into my soul. I feel like if we saw a torso somewhere, we would not even think it was real either. No. Like I would be very questioning of that. I mean, what would you do? You'd still call 911. Yeah, I would check it out. Not touch it or anything. Just get like a good (laughs) look and make sure that if I called and it wasn't, the cops would also be like, damn, that looks super realistic. You know? Mm-hmm. but I, I worry about that now that i'm trying to like walk and do more things in nature yeah if you don't go for a walks in nature you're not gonna find a torso <laughs> <laughs> what they don't want you to know but national parks <laughs> like... <laughs> right anti-advertisement but yeah, yeah not good mm. The Kingsbury Run murders remain one of the most perplexing cases in our nation's criminal history. Rumors abound as to who may have been the killer. One thing is very clear. Elliot Ness had a suspect who he believed was undoubtedly the killer. This suspect continued to taunt Ness for years after killings had stopped. All official police reports on this case had been lost, destroyed, or removed. It could be just because he's a dick, too. Like This guy... If you burn down my shanty, I'm coming for you. Well, the person that he suspected, I don't think he lived in the shanties. I don't think he lived in the shanty town, but I think he maybe frequented, potentially, I don't remember, the Roaring Third. I mean, he wasn't doing great, but even after 
he like got away he continued to write letters to Elliot Mm -hmm. Ness and he never like confessed to the murders in the letters but he was definitely like taunting him for not being able to figure it out yeah which that could have been any crazy person he knows who was sending them it was this one person yes but that's not to say that that is the the torso killer right no it's not it's not to say it was for sure him however i'm pretty sure it was effing him (laughs) (laughs) okay so most investigators consider the last canonical murder to have been in 1938 so they stopped counting after that they weren't convinced that all the other murders that occurred after that were connected canonical get out of here that word i copied (laughs) okay good (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i i don't think i've ever used that word in my life <laughs> all i know is canonical rhymes with monocle and i know what a monocle is <laughs> one suspected individual was dr francis edward who went by frank sweeney he was born may 5th 1894 and sweeney was a veteran of world war one who was part of a medical unit that conducted amputations in the field Okay. So there's that. Yeah. After the war, Sweeney became an alcoholic due to pathological anxiety and depression derived from his wartime experiences. And his heavy drinking began in 1929. And by 1934, his alcoholism led to a separation from his wife. So his life was falling apart. Right. Also would like to note in here that he had head damage and i don't remember if it was it occurred during the war i think it did so he had a traumatic brain injury as well okay on top of that during his military service he was gassed in combat which resulted in nerve damage so rough go yeah he's got all kinds of jacked up stuff going on Sweeney was later personally interviewed by Elliot Ness, who oversaw the official investigation um, into the killings in his capacity as the Cleveland safety director. And before the interrogation, Sweeney was detained. He was found to be so intoxicated that he was held in a hotel room for three days. Holy. Until he sobered up. Three days? Like, I've been drunk before, but not three-day hangover drunk. Where you can't ask me questions for three days well and i've been blackout like dead to the world drunk and by the next morning i definitely know that that was a mistake and like yeah and you can talk and stuff so i don't uh think he was drunk for three days because like that's not possible but he was like so messed up that they had to wait three whole days before they could really properly interview him so like dang That's, that's crazy During this interrogation, Sweeney is said to have failed to pass two very early polygraph machine tests, which we know, whatever. Both tests were administered by polygraph expert Leonardi Keeler, who told Ness he... (laughs) Who thought you could make that Southern (laughs) sounding? Leonardi Keeler. (laughs) I would have said like fridge. Leonard, yeah, Leonard Keeler, <laughs> Leonardy Keeler. Yeah. <laughs> uh, man, he he told Ness he had his man. Ness apparently felt there was little chance of obtaining a successful prosecution of the doctor, especially as he was the first cousin of one of Ness's political opponents, Congressman Martin L. Sweeney who had hounded Ness publicly about his failure to catch the killer. And then he's going to be like, oh, now you're going to use one of my, what? His my cousin? cousin. My cousin. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a little, yeah, not a good look. After Sweeney committed himself, there was no more leads or connections the police could assign to him as a possible suspect. From his hospital confinement, Sweeney sent threatening postcards and harassed Ness and his family into the 1950s. The postcards only stopped arriving after his death. Sweeney died in a veterans hospital in Dayton. That's where we live. He died in our veterans hospital, man. Oh, on July 9th, 1964. So you think this is the guy? Yeah. Okay. I think this is the guy. 
Okay. I agree with Elliot Ness. You would. You don't think it's this. You don't think he's the guy. I don't think he's the guy, but I don't know who the guy is. So, I mean, we could just say it's him, I guess. I mean, maybe it's not. I'm I'm easily persuaded off of this, but I also think that it was probably him. I mean, I feel like he definitely has a vendetta against he, Ness. Yeah, there was, I don't know. I think it was him. So, and he died in our hospital, dude. Yeah, like very close to us. So Sweeney was considered a viable suspect, but the evidence against him was purely circumstantial. They didn't have anything solid, so they couldn't go after him. In 1929, he was a surgical resident at St. Alexis Hospital in the Kingsbury Run area. So, hello. He also had an office on the same street where a man named Emil Fronick claimed a doctor had tried to drug him in 1934. Fronick's story was ultimately discounted as he could not relocate the building that he was drugged and tried to take into with the police the following day. But upon finding a victim with drugs in her system and looking through buildings, it was found that Sweeney did have an office next to a coroner in the area where Fronick had suggested he had been drugged. So he was unable Mm. to take them to the exact building, but he took them to a near location and I think it was thought that he was taking Fronick through the back door so he didn't recognize the front ends of the building right. when when he's drugged. Right. Because he was already drugged at this point. So, you know, cut this cut this bros and slack. It was also found that Sweeney would practice in their morgue, which would have been a clean and convenient location to kill victims. He was given bodies from the morgue to practice surgical things on. So somebody literally could have gone down there and he could have just murdered somebody and they would have thought he was practicing. What? That blows my mind. I mean, and it's basically like his kill house, like his location that's already clean and sanitized and, worked on for for his job i feel like though that if you were stumbled upon sweeney several times and he was chopping the heads off of all of them you'd be like dude try something else you know like give something else a go (laughs) you got this down you don't normally have to do that in surgery you need to calm down (laughs) right you're not gonna save anybody by chopping off their nog like i don't know but yeah but who he knows? Could probably, he could. But you could also probably say, no, 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 that's messed up. Never mind. What? Well, you got to say it now. Well, like if you're going to practice on a body for surgery, maybe cutting their head off would make you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> like then you're not having to look at their face. Or you could put a sheet over it. <laughs> that would be why I stopped myself from sharing the thought. <laughs> Or like an eye mask. I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's very dramatic. I tried to take it back. (laughs) I decided that there were better ways to go about that mid-sentence. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's still awfully freaking convenient that he has a spot and he's a suspect. And who knows, he could have access to that any time of day. So maybe he's not doing it during business hours you know he could be doing it at any point in time yeah when there's not people around so Mm. i don't know i don't know who knows yeah i don't i don't know either i don't know how i feel about all this now i don't know i hate that we'll never know like i just drives me nuts i know and i feel like this this whole situation is so gruesome and like really terrible to talk about and like so many people were never identified it's just really really sad but I feel like because it happened so long ago, it's like easier to talk about it. Right. Because like, it doesn't seem real. Yeah, it all seems like just so unreal. And then too, yeah, now we're at a point where we're never going to know for sure who did this. No. It's like just... what could they possibly find? They literally lost all of the police records. Well, and everybody's probably dead. And everybody's dead. And... It's just wild that what 
what a time to be alive back then. You know, this this would not happen. Yes, they're serial killers and it takes a while, but eventually they will be found because of mm-hmm. all of the cameras and every DNA evidence is crazy. Like there are so many things like I bet serial killers nowadays is like, man, I wish that I was in the 30s right now because I would be so good. Right. Yeah, or even a little bit before that, like writing letters to have people come help out on your farm and being like, "Oh, they left. Thanks for the insurance money." Well, and that like, was in the two thousands. Oh yeah, that was, but that also happened way earlier. Yeah, with um, what that girl? I forget her name. Yeah, it happened Ugh. a lot, not just with yeah. her, but yeah. Mm. Oh, Bell Gunnis is it Bell Gunnis? Yes, Bell Gunnis. That's yeah, the one. but. All right, so I used clevelandpolicemuseum.org, Wikipedia, timetoast.com, and then I listened to the Stuff You Should Know podcast, which I've listened to that before, and I've never heard them do anything having to do with murders. Mm -hmm. It's usually just about stuff, like random stuff. Yeah, I think I listened to one they did on Ouija boards, how Ouija boards work. Yeah, they're but they don't do all like dark Mm-mm. occulty things. Like a lot of their stuff is just like how do toasters u- work? Unicorns and you know popcorn. I don't yeah. know. So I was kind of surprised because I searched for this topic and found mm-hmm. that, and I was like, oh hey, I already like that podcast. I'm gonna listen to that one. So right, I did. But yeah, hmm. crazy. Well, this happened so close. It really did. Well, and I didn't know that the Cleveland Police Museum was in existence, so we should, like, plan a trip there. Their website was really informative, and they also had on the site, and I didn't really use it, but I had it pulled up, they had a lot of information about how they went about trying to identify these victims. So they were able to identify some of them, and you probably get the vibe from listening to this that they Mm -hmm. didn't try that hard, but I think they did. Yeah. And it really, like, details out, like, what they did. So no, I and sometimes in in the stories that we tell, you know, it's kind of shoddy police work. You don't feel like they really care, but I do think that they did try really the hardest that they could to try to find this person. And it's it just a lot the of times, yeah, mm-hmm. and it just there wasn't the the capability of doing it mm-hmm. like like you can now. So so yeah. let us know who you think the Cleveland Torso murderer is. And uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode 143, 143rd, <laughs> 143 on the Cleveland Torso Murders. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.